Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Raymond Camden and Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. And special guest today is Michael Tintiuk. Did I get that anywhere near right? No, you actually got it perfect. Hey, everyone. Oh, awesome. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Are you stuck in your software development career trying to figure out how to move to the next stage? Let me help. I'm starting a program to help developers move up in their careers using proven techniques and by starting a podcast in order to advance. Right now, I'm only scheduling calls to see where you're at, where you want to go, and how we can get you there. There's no sales involved, and you can schedule that call at devchat.tv slash next level. So, Michael, would you mind introducing yourself so our audience knows how awesome you are? Yeah, that's flattering. But yeah, it's kind of hard to describe myself in few words, uh, the latest, I'm a software engineer at Modus Create, digital agency, and I've been working there for over three years. Before that, I was a, let's say, freelancer, my own boss, doing tech stuff as well. But my roots are with design and art. That's where the design agency older funds came, came about with uh, my girlfriend. So from doing design such as logos and uh, vector graphics to websites, to clothing, actually. So yeah, I'm versatile, and I just I just like to fiddle with stuff. So that that's my true nature. Nice. And what led you from from the design into programming specifically? That's <laughs> that's probably not the most common answer you're gonna get. But basically, we needed a website for our design studio, and we've ordered one, and we paid good money for it, but we got absolute garbage back. And at that time, I had no idea what Java and JavaScript is and what's the difference between the two. So that poor result for a, a big amount of money for what at least seemed to us at the time actually forced and led me to figure it out. And I said, obviously, this is not as difficult as it seems. And given these guys did such a poor job, I'm pretty sure I can do better. So I picked up a book online on jQuery, read half of it, understood that I know nothing and just off I went. I, I wrote my first site menu in jQuery and learned what HTML is. And I, I was, my mind was blown when I used FTP for the first time. Yeah. So I got, got into programming in a very weird way. That's actually not as uncommon as you might think. I mean, hmm. I've heard story after story after story of people who, including myself, who got into it because something needed to be done and nobody else could do it. And I figured I might as well learn how to do it. And hey, this is cool. Let's keep doing that. You know, I got into it because I, I, an association that I was part of needed somebody to take over a website. And I was like, okay, sure. And that's back in the days of Microsoft front page. So, and I learned HTML and CS. So that's, you know, they say necessity is the motherhood of invention. And in this case, you're inventing your skills or developing, which I always say. So it's actually very common. Yeah, I'd love to surround myself with people like that. Unfortunately, nowadays, I think it's kind of hard to see people that actually go that extra step. They would rather pay someone or, I mean, I like to, to, have, to be friends with people that actually learn stuff and invent stuff. And yeah, I don't, I, I kind of, I agree with you totally, but kind of disagree with that okay. part of being common. I know for a fact, even in my work, I don't see a lot of people that actually think that way. You know, I hope I make myself clear. Well, no, I wasn't. It wasn't so much common that it's common across people. It's common across okay. those who have gotten into programming and that the okay. need arose and they figured, hey, let me figure how this works. And they got into it and went 
you know, and learned it from there. So gotcha. Yeah, the the first big site that I wrote was was trying to put together a community website and had to fight with PHP to try and put everything together. And that's that's what got me into PHP and then backend and then everything else. So I I I think that is a very useful path because instead of saying from from the computer science perspective of I'm just going to learn data structures or algorithms, you're starting from a position of I want this end result. How do I get there? And that that helps define your path. So I, I like that path a lot. I, I've grown to not be able to learn otherwise. Like I cannot pick up a book and read it. I mean, I've done so. I picked up a book on C and I read it cover to cover. And when I put it down, I said, okay, I know C. In reality, I had no idea about C because I didn't write anything truly. And when you, when you know what you want, as you said, that's like you learn exactly what you need and everything surrounding and intertwined with it. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm, I think we'll come back to this topic a little bit later, learning different things to, to solve specific problems. But right out the gate, you are, were on episode 34 of Views on View, uh, talking about Ionic and View. And at the time, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was Ionic 3 that was out at the time. Oh, it was That's version 4. the one. That oh, it was version 4. Okay. So we haven't talked about Ionic on this show that often. Would you mind giving a brief recap for our listeners of what Ionic is and what kind of what problems it's solving? Yeah, sure. It's an easy question, but actually it's a very kind of, like frameworks and libraries now, they've grown so huge, they no longer solve a single purpose, right? And Ionic is kind of that way. I mean, it's on one hand, it's a UI framework, but on the other other, other hand, it's, it's a huge platform uh, that has tentacles around everything like they have their own cordova like system which is well supersedes cordova basically and uh, capacitor and like now they run on different frameworks like Vue and angular and react and they've created stencil which is basically the underlying technology that powers ionic so answering what ionic is is really it's i think a platform is the best description for it you actually write for Ionic instead of just using Ionic, at, le- at least with uh, starting with version four, because there's that much stuff un- under the hood. I think it's important to point out too that you know their their main target has been hybrid mobile dev from the beginning, and definitely you can do more with it now. But that was kind of like for me, I I came to Ionic being a Cordova person and. It gave me that nice UI framework on top, and it just kept adding bells and whistles, really good features, but kept adding more and more to it. Yeah, I think I think that's their focus still, and it allows you to do desktop apps. But I think yeah, their sole, their main focus is on hybrid mobile, and really like okay. they they're doing a great job for just the fact that you can switch on the fly between iOS versions and Android versions, like literally with the flick of a button, your app can look in like native like ios or android is, is quite amazing including like transitions and ui elements etc that seems very powerful especially if i mean you're basically just writing with standard view right you're, you're just using yeah. html css and javascript yeah exactly i mean you're literally writing standard javascript there is not much view exposed to the user everything is made so well, I, I guess we kind of transition to Ionic View at this point. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. So, 
I, I'm on the Ionic Framework website right now, and I see they're saying one code base, any platform, now in Vue. So yeah. I, obviously, before you were talking about how it works with Vue, is, is this a deeper integration that didn't exist before? Well, yes and no. So when I was on your show two years ago, the Ionic 4 came out. So that introduced the ability to, to use Ionic with other frameworks before it was limited to Angular. So they've opened up to React and Vue and basically any other framework that will implement ties to Ionic, right? That will create that, that bridge between the two. So it just happened so that I wrote the, the Vue bridge. And that was two years ago, and we've uh, we've been working on it since. We've contributed it back to the Ionic uh, repository, but it was basically in alpha state for all of this time because, uh, well, Ionic people had other uh, focuses, and I view view three was just around the corner, so they decided that they kind of want to wait up on it, and I was basically working more on the uh, bleeding edge side, getting bug fixes, et cetera, for Vue 2. And it was supported by Modus uh, in our repository. Uh, so when the Vue 3 version came out, the, what was it? Alpha or beta beta version this April, I think, right? I kind of wrote a quick patch to, to make it work. And it was kind of cool that I kind of got to relieve the, that aha moment from two years ago when I actually made it work. And it was amazing. Like, not often can you relieve that that one moment. So yeah, it made it work. And now Ionic got interested again because that was the kind of the version they, they wanted to go with, with Vue 3 and to move forward because supporting two versions of Vue is going to be taxing and difficult. So that's why, to, your, to answer your question, it, it also existed before, but it also is a new integration because it is now officially supported by Ionic. So it went from alpha state to... Uh, to a full-on release. Okay, so so rather than it just being a project that was supported by Modus Create, and sounds like you you were spearheading this effort, mm-hmm. it is now back under the Ionic umbrella, and I would assume you're still working on it and still coordinating with the Ionic team. Yeah, exactly. So, our, so okay. after our initial contribution, it was put on hold on their side basically, and I was just trying to fix some bugs and moving our our fork. To, to say uh, forward, but now uh, there are some people, some developers on Ionic side that kind of took over and I'm more of a support role and trying to fix bugs or basically consult on the view best practices, for instance, like implementing hooks the right way and doing unit tests, etc. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations on on getting that in. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I linked an article announcing the Ionic view official support and it looks like you are called out specifically at the bottom of it so right uh, the ionic framework is recognizing you as well which is great i'm sure so great what how hard is it to get started with using ionic and view together like let's say i want to build a mobile application and nothing fancy let's just consider basic to do how how difficult is that to get started well there there should be little to no effort Literally just install the plugin as if you would install the router, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you do view use, etc. And then you just import the the components that you need. Say you need a, a button, an Ionic button. You just import that as you would do any other component and just put it in your single file SMC, right? And that's it. 
and you write simple view and simple JavaScript, you add click handlers, event handlers, etc. There's support for vModel. It's, it's meant to be, and it was created to be as seamless as possible. You, 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 have, you have to forget that you're using something third party. That was my reasoning. That was my thought process when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. And under the hood of the, the view layer, are, are you just tying in, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Ionic uses web components as its yep. base, and that, that's what kind of integrates with all the different frameworks. Mm-hmm. So you're just tying in view components with the web components, and then Ionic is rendering, I believe, with a, an HTML wrapper in the, in the mobile app. Is that correct? Yeah, and well, there are two separate kind of questions, but I'll, I'll try to answer from, from the beginning, from the very beginning, like starting okay. with view two, as you said, since Ionic is powered by view component, uh, by web components, for view two it was kind of a, a problem uh, because it, view didn't play very well with web components, especially if those names clashed. So if I were to define component A and that was the same name as the Ionix web component, stuff would just break. So that that was one of the points why Ionic didn't really want to support view two. So I kind of had to create hacks around it, etc. But you're right, The that moment when I first started tinkering with Ionic and Vue, most of the stuff actually worked out of the box uh, because web components are rendered just fine. So I was thinking, hey, there's not much work to be done here. But like the meat of, of the library is basically the router and the transitions. So that was the most difficult part to imp- implement. I didn't want to create a new router, so I was extending the Vue's official router most of the components, as you say, are just wrappers around web components right now. And they're all functional com- uh, functional components so that they're not uh, very taxing on the app. They don't use any extra memory. They're just proxies, to be honest. And yeah, just, just the router is basically the, the core of the library. And a couple of components that are like tabs, for instance, they are a separate component with some of their logic still a functional component to squeeze out the maximum power and performance out of it. And that was the first question. As to the other, how do you put it? it since, since it is rendered as a hybrid app, so there's no way around it, it will be rendered within a web view. So yeah, it's not like there's any extra layer around it. It's just your normal web view. Right. So I got one question. So stepping back for a minute, if you want to write an app in Ionic, do you have to have a library on top of like Vue or React? Can you write strictly in Ionic? How does how does that whole interaction work? Yeah, because uh, well, I kind of I was wrong when I was saying like they opened up to other frameworks. They actually opened themselves up to pure JavaScript as well. So that's that's a perfectly valid point. You just write web components. Uh, if you go to like MDN and just look how to use web components, that's pretty much it. You just download the Ionic framework, right? And you just you would just create a new web component and put data in and it would get rendered. So in this case, you're using Vue to write web components? Is that? No, in this case, I am basically wrapping those web components in Vue components. Oh, so okay. when, you would, when you import, like let's say ion button, what happens behind the scenes, there's an ion button defined in the library in Ionic Vue which is a wrapper around just ion button, the web component. But it actually maps 
view properties, view event listeners, two-way data binding, all of that view stuff to the web component and make sure that it works correctly. Okay. So I see. Yeah. Okay. So it's just basically a wrapper is all it is. So, you, yeah, so for- you're writing your view app, which communicates with view Ionic, which communicates with the web component? Yeah, for, for the most part. Yeah. Okay. And then if you need access to any of the the mobile APIs, like the camera or the accelerometer or things like that, I'm assuming Ionic just provides those. Oh, not, Would you... Not, not- Really, it's it's a no, separate really. package okay. that is capacitor that actually does that. Oh, it's capacitor. Okay. Yeah, it, because Ionic at its, at its core, my that's why my 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 answer was kind of complicated. Ionic at its core is a UI framework, so that just provides UI elements that are kind of tailored and look very native-like to iOS or Android. But if you actually want to use the hardware, that's where capacitor comes in. Got it. And from experience, let me tell you, it, it just works so nicely and easily to set up. We, we've created some demo apps uh, two years ago using Ionic View. And coming from Cordova, Capacitor is just a breeze. It's so much, I don't know, it's just easier. To, it just works. That's awesome. Do you need to do any sort of wrapping? Like for using these in View 3, do you need any access to the, the composition API and do some sort of wrapping around to make it work in view, or do you just import these as basically JavaScript imports? Well, in user land, basically, when the developer writes their app, right, they don't have to do anything extra. You just okay. import it. When, as an as a author of the library, I, I relied heavily on composition API, and that actually solved so many problems I had before in version two. It, it was a godsend. It was such a, it allowed me to do things so, fluently i don't know it, it just looked beautiful you know uh, in, instead of what we had in uh, view 2 and actually this approach I, I was trying to replicate with other languages and to be explicit to be open my day job is a react job <laughs> uh, i don't know it's it, it kind of, being on a view podcast and having react day job seems weird but it's okay um, we'll forgive you was, yes thank you <laughs> uh, my my sins are absolved you're not the first I, I, <laughs> I, I was trying to mimic that because I was working days on React and then nights on uh, Vue and having this stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you get used to good stuff easily, yeah. So you'd mentioned that Vue 3 made things easier. Can you give us some, any chance you could give some specific examples of what you could do easier in Vue 3 that you couldn't do with Vue 2, Vue 2 or at least that was much more difficult? Yeah. Well, just the the difference in the in the framework itself. Like before, I could not have uh, components be named. Well, view components share the same name as a web component, for one. But that probably will not be the experience of all of the developers. As for a composition API, I had a very particular case. So I had this uh, tabs component, which had several children. It had an ion tab bar, which basically had tab buttons and then it had the area that it will display but i had to keep track of the tab bar because there could could have been two of them one at the top one at the bottom each having a different children tab buttons so i had to keep track of the buttons to know which one was pressed was it the up or the down one and i actually created just a ref of the tab bars and then i created refs within those tab bars for the buttons and i just exported well not exported but i provided those refs and injected them in the set components. And while I had those 
those values available across the whole library. It was, it was just that easy to write and read data. And before that was not, it was not possible to be done only probably with global variables in version two. I hope that made sense. <laughs> I think it did. That's awesome to hear. Just the way I see those, it's, it's like pointers. You just send a pointer to a data structure and you can read it, you can change it, you can pass that one around the whole thing, right? That's very, very a very handy feature. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. How has your experience with React influenced how you look at the the composition API in Vue 3? Well, I I don't even know how to answer that. I don't think it, it really did. Maybe maybe it's just the way how we use React at, at work, but I and, and to be honest, I do React at work and I do not touch it anywhere else. I don't, I'm just not a fan of it. And not for just just because it's more of a personal taste, I guess. So I didn't get any impact from that. But as as far as I understand, like React actually influenced the composition composition API in Vue. It I don't know, not not very sure, actually. Yeah, I know I know there's some parallels between the composition API and React hooks. I remember my gut reaction when I saw the composition API for the first time is, oh, it looks like React hooks, but more verbose. But uh, yeah, okay. Now, now, I, it, now it clicks. I guess it's my understanding of composition APIs in, in this library. I really didn't use that many hooks, and right. I just used those refs and all of that stuff that was more useful for me. But yeah, now it makes more sense. Okay. Okay, that makes sense then. Awesome. Do you have any other any points on Viewer Ionic that you'd like to go over before we move on? Yeah. That was a, a cool little package that we've created for Ionic View. Basically, the, the the idea is that we've 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 given Ionic View to the public to Ionic, and we're gonna continue development with Ionic uh, in their repo, right? But we wanted to continue doing something without needing any explicit permission from Ionic to do pull requests. So we've created uh, Ionic Vitor, and well, you're all familiar with. The IntelliSense and that package, right, that provides support for uh, Vue. So I've I've created a small package that basically does that for Ionic as well, and I, w- I it was it was nice being able to support that. But now it is also in the uh, Ionic repo, so that it that that was flagged official as well. So it was actually very very nice to yeah. Thank you. And the coolest thing is that actually that you don't even need to do anything to to make it work. You just install Ionic View, and if you use Vim, it's going to work there. If you use uh, VS Code, it's going to work there. And it has all of the um, type ahead and the uh, order format, all of that stuff. And, and that's just called Ionic Vitor, and that's that's in VS Code. No, it's not even a separate package. It's just an empty oh, okay. package. But but I guess Ionic's core package just supersedes that. There's no no point to link to okay. to our version. Yeah. That's, That's I just want to make sure our, to uh, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say that it was kind of our story that you you do like bleeding edge stuff and you kind of like give it away to the public and then kind mm-hmm. of try to support it. And really that's that works fine for me. I do not believe in really having any ownership of that kind of stuff. If it benefits the the community, that's all I need. I love that view. No pun intended. So I'd like to talk a little bit about 
other frameworks, other languages that you've used. Before we we started the episode, you were talking about how at your your company, there's this game a year, I believe, mm-hmm. is what you said, and that you were programming using C, which it sounds like you have some familiarity with multiple programming languages, not just JavaScript and not just Vue React. So I'm, I'd like to hear a little bit about that and how, how you've kind of learned all these different languages and how that impacts sure. your programming. So I, um, as I said before, I kind of started with JavaScript and jQuery, and that seemed like the easiest what I can start with and then kind of progress, same as you, to PHP and the backend and kind of totally forgot about JavaScript and didn't actually care for it that much. And then I moved on to Python and as a video game nerd and the wolves wanted to create video games so python seemed like good easy easy language to pick up and there were some libraries to do video games just something for your own small projects right and i actually didn't like javascript that much like in the early to mid 2000s with jquery and all of that nonsense right as for your question about the video game in modus our co-founders are huge video game nerds just as i am and we just love our video games and starting from the retro uh, NES games like Zelda, etc. So we have uh, an idea of creating a video game a year uh, and create that video game, not just for the desktop, but actually for smaller obscure devices that we can actually ship to our clients as gifts for uh, for Christmas and New Year's. That was, it started, I think it was like four years ago or something. Or, yeah. Four years ago, so we've uh, we've been honing our skills since then, and we've been writing some C with for Arju Boy, like small pocket-sized game consoles, and that kind of grew, 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 and to the point that we've actually created our own game engine in C and C plus plus. I'll link to that. It's called Oh my God, I don't remember the name of it. Creative Engine. <laughs> yeah, and we've created a couple of games with them. One using an SVG display engine. Another one was more of a, like, not Tetris-like, but more of a puzzle game. The And the, the last one is actually a Zelda-like game with, I believe, over, I don't remember the number of dungeons, but there's, like, a, an absurd amount of levels and dungeons we've created for it. And power-ups and magic and, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Like, enemies shoot arrows at you and you can parry them. They will be propelled back to the enemy. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I love working at that. It's... That that for me is like the magic of programming. Not that you write business logic, but you actually write a bunch of letters and text. You run it, you compile it, you run it, and something happens. You can actually interact with that program. Some images move, some flashes, some explosions. It's just, I, I get transformed into a kid, like in an instant. Yeah, I think you awesome. should go back and do some of the Atari 2600 games or maybe Pong or something like that. And go really, <laughs> yeah, really retro. We did that as a uh, when we created the engine. I wrote like the a pong clone, then a breakout clone to to kind of show off oh, the capabilities of an engine. <laughs> That's old school breakout. I'd forgotten about breakout with the yeah. paddles, little paddles on the twenty six hundred. Yep. Yeah. One of the main reasons I got into coding was to cheat at older video games. I remember using a disk editor to edit Bard's Tale save files get myself experience and stuff and it just kind of snowballed from there yeah i can i can relate to that like my tech background basically started off as a kid well where i'm from from eastern europe we never had 
in the nineties, like those uh, GameStops and all of all of those stores, we couldn't buy official licensed product, so they were all knockoffs. Like we didn't have an NES; it was called Dendi. And then when PCs came about, you obviously you didn't have licensed CDs, so everything came in a CD. And then there was a folder that was called Crack, so you had to crack your own game, right? So that's where you actually figured how computers work. You had like core dumps because you did something wrong. So you had to dial up the internet and figure it out what was happening. So you learn how to break stuff before you learn how to make stuff. Sounds accurate. I I <laughs> got into video game design. I don't remember how old I was. I, I was wanting to build Sonic the Hedgehog fan games. I just remember downloading the sprites and putting it together using a visual editor. I didn't get into code for a while after that. But it was it was just a lot of fun. That's what That's what got me in here as well. That reminded me of there's an engine, well, a framework that actually allows you to write code and games for Sega Genesis. You can actually write a new game for that console and you can burn it to a cartridge after. It will wow. blow your mind. It's it's incredibly difficult and there's little to no documentation, but it is possible. Yeah. that's That sounds really cool. <laughs> awesome. And, and I'm just curious because you know all of these different programming languages and it sounds like you are you are well versed in them rather than just kind of knowing a little bit here a little bit there how how does knowing one language let's say python or c++ impact using javascript or vue or one of the other languages that you know i think it it has such a huge impact that it's it's unmeasurable when i started out with just php and that was all i i knew and i started off with trying out python and like wow stuff is implemented differently in Python. There is like this other world. It's, it's like looking out of a different window and seeing the different corner of, of your street, right? It changes you and then you try to implement the same stuff in uh, PHP. And the biggest, well, I guess the greatest example is Python's approach to do first, ask forgiveness later. I've never thought of that in PHP. Like, I... After I discovered that, I would always wrap everything and try catch and do stuff first and ask ask forgiveness later. That changed me completely. Then another example with uh, more modern JavaScript was the use of if-else. Like I saw before PHP developers, for some reason, they love if-else and they would nest those so many levels deep. And I don't know, it's just the examples that I saw in JavaScript were different for some reason. So you would return early, for instance, and for, for a certain condition, and you would write out the logic below. So all of all of those small things, they kind of pile up and they they actually create your style of programming, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's in a way it's like martial arts, right? The the more martial arts you know, the the different in you will be fighting in a different way, I guess. It's yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. As as you were describing the if statements, I was remembering my four or five nested layers back mm-hmm. when I wrote PHP. But yeah, in, in JavaScript, it's there's a different take. You return early, you don't get into that nested situation in the same way. It's yeah. I I, I feel like so so in using spoken languages, I speak English and Portuguese and a little bit of German, and then using that, I'm able to to put together my sentences in a different way when I'm communicating with people. And I, I think it definitely mirrors in programming from my experience, at least. Does that sound familiar to you? Absolutely. In my case, my first language is Russian. 
but since I'm from Eastern Europe, Moldova, there's the, the national language is Romanian and I also speak English. So the, the impact is, is also huge because languages is not just what you write and what you speak. I, I, I think language in the first place is how we think because Germans think differently from Russians and Americans, etc. So their language actually defines their thought process and how the language is structured. And I think it's the same, absolutely the same with programming languages. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. The uh, The tricky part, I think, would be like when sometimes I'll be saying something in English and then I just can't remember the English word. I can only remember the Portuguese word or there's a certain phrase that I just can't translate. And I think that happens in programming too. I like to experiment with the Elm programming language and it is very different from JavaScript, even though it's it's still front end, it's still building UIs. And I'll, I'll start mixing up the two. How do you how do you deal with something like that where you start working, you've been working in C++ and then suddenly you're shifting back to React or Vue. Is there, is there some, any the trickies? No? The worst case is when you jump from Go or Python to JavaScript or C++ because they... they uh, the syntax is that different. Yeah, it's like I haven't been u- using Go for for a couple of months, and I went back to one of my projects, and I was like, "What? I don't remember what. How how does it work? It's it's just, it's that different from your norm. Let's say normal languages uh, with normal C syntax. It it happens, but thankfully, I don't jump languages that very often, so it's not much of a problem as it used to when I was more dabbling all of the time, but. It it is it is very it is a real struggle for sure. So yeah. Lindsay, it's fair to say you like to branch out with Elm. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> do you have any Do you have any tricks, Michael? When you when you come back from, let's say you when you got back into Go, do you have anything that you do to try and remember? Do you, or do you just look at the program again and try and figure it out as if you were running the application? Or what What's your trick? Yeah, yeah, especially for for projects that you haven't worked on for a while. And now that everything is basically, I, I try to split up everything in smaller files as much as possible, well, limiting myself to to not going overboard. But uh, yeah, it just helps to, to trace your thought process. And sometimes you're reading the cards like, why, why, why have you done that? And then it clicks, and you kind of go back into the into the groove, and you understand how it works. Sometimes it goes faster, sometimes slower, but yeah. Okay. I wish awesome. there was a button I could I could click and everything would make sense again, but alas. Not quite yet. No, I didn't there has to be a plugin for that, I guess. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Elon Musk is working on one for us. Right. Well, cool. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we before we wrap up? I think that's it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank you for joining us today and going over uh Ionic View and just kind of expounding on programming in general. This has been great. Thank you. It was was a pleasure. It was a walk down the memory lane as well. Yeah, awesome. Hey, folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become 
one in 20 of the best developers out there. And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. So at this point, we're going to move to picks. Picks are the part of the show where we share things with you, the audience, that we like. They don't need to be programming related. And today we will start with Raymond. Raymond, do you have a pick for us? Thank you for picking me first in case my internet drops again. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, uh, a movie called Antebellum. I had not heard of it. Movies are real weird nowadays because it goes straight to digital and they never get a trailer and just appears. But it's a very intense movie. It's not an easy watch, but it was really surprising. And uh, I think my favorite movie of the year. So again, not a happy movie in any sense of the word, but check it out. Cool. Thank you. Steve, do you have a pick today? Yep. Today I'm going to go with the hardware route. And that I have a setup where I've got two laptops. I got my personal one. And then I had the one specifically for my job. And I like, I'm big on monitors and space and have a hard time functioning on just a small laptop. So in the past I've had on my desk, it's fairly wide. I've been able to squeeze four monitors, but this time I just decided to go for three. So I've got a couple of 32 inch monitors and the 27 inch. And so in, to make get the most space available, I decided to go with the KVM switch for my middle monitor. So my two laptops are hooked up to the KVM switch, which is hooked to the monitor. And then all I do is push a little button on the switch and it switches back and forth between which computer to the monitors uh, using, which is, you know, standard what KVM switches for. And there are some switches that you can, you know, switch to one monitor between two whole computers using the keyboard and the mouse and so on. I didn't want to quite go that far. So anyway, when I was looking for switches, the one that kept coming up the most was a company called, I think it's TE Smart is how you say it. And they've got a little two port KVM switch with HDMI 2.0 video and it can handle keyboard and mouse and stuff too and works just perfect for switching this one monitor between the two, two computers. And one of the really nice things about it is that when you switch monitors, it keeps your windows where they're at. And there's in the instructional video they have on their website, they talk about what this technology is called. And I don't remember it off the top of my head or offhand either. But basically what it means is, you know, normally if, if you have your laptop connected to a monitor and you disconnect from the monitor and go use your laptop and come back, then your windows a lot of times will be moved around and weren't where you left them. Where in this case, if I switch between the two computers, when I come back, everything is exactly where I had left it. So it makes it real easy, real nice, and it's a bit of a room saver as well. So I'll put the link to this particular model in the show notes. That is excellent. I have a client that needs a new KVM switch. I'm going to look at that. Thank you. Michael, what are your picks today? I've got a couple. They're all gaming related. So I'll start with the one that is actually related to programming, which is the Godot game engine. I'm a big proponent of free and open source software. So as when it comes to gaming engines, I think that one is is most most of the time the number one choice for anyone. So that was my recommendation. And I'm I'm actually writing a small game of my own using it. Moving on, I would like to 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 just give a props uh, to shout out to Souls like series. And now with the PlayStation Five coming out with Demon Souls, that's hands down my favorite series in video games. Starting with Demon Souls, Dark Souls, and Bloodborne, and all of those. And the next one is uh, a project called Chiaki, which allows you to 
to play your PlayStation uh, remotely on your Linux or FreeBSD or Mac OS or Windows or Nintendo Switch. It's mind-blowing what you can do with it. You can actually run your PlayStation like the one behind me, and I can play it on my laptop remotely. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. I'm going to interrupt our flow for just a second because I was looking at the Godot game engine myself. And what's what's your what's your take on it compared to something like Unity? I love it. I mean, I, when I was well, I was shopping for uh, game engines, and I was looking at Unity, and well, there's a myriad of choice, right? But my first criteria was free and open source. And from those ones, I think it's hands down the best. And they they get so much attention now and so many grants. And so I started out when it was pre-version 3. And I can clearly see the progress. And I, will, I love it. I like it. If I remember right, it's got a, a Python-like syntax for, for doing of, scripting. GD script. I, I'm yeah. not a fan of that, but it actually works. I'm not a fan solely because I am. I have muscle memory in Vim. I hate when somebody makes me use an ID or something like that. But thank God they've impl- actually not long ago they've implemented a language server for their language for GDScript. So now I can use Vim at peace and write my own game without having to learn well relearn my uh, flow. Awesome! I will. I, I picked up a course for it over Black Friday. I need to dig into Godot. Mm-hmm. Sounds really cool. I'll ask, I'll ask you if I have any questions. Sure. Cool. So I will do my pick now. And today my pick is testingjavascript.com. For those who aren't aware of what it is, it is a very thorough course on JavaScript testing, starting with static testing like ESLint or Prettier or TypeScript, going through unit tests, end-to-end tests using Cypress, and then Node backend tests as well. Uh, it's by Kent C. Dodds. It is, I, I, I purchased it over the Black Friday time period where it was a little bit on discount. It is definitely a good course. I've been really enjoying it so far. And uh, if you want to get more into JavaScript testing, which if you're not into testing, you probably should be. It's 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 an excellent t- choice for, for getting into that. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's definitely a good deal. Great. Michael, where can people find you online if they want to continue this conversation? Well, I'm basically, I've got the, the same nickname on uh, the whole of the internet, Michael Tintuk. Everything just slurred together, my first and last name, on GitHub, Twitter, uh, Instagram, whatever. Great. And we will put that in to the show notes as well. Once again, Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's been a great talking with you today. Thank you. And if you want to follow us more, you can find us at viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can also find me personally on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Raymond at Raymond Camden and Steve at Wonder95. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again next week. Adios. Bye. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.